right, so this morning um, we are going to proceed in our study of the Passion Week. Um, as I was preparing, I was thinking, Erica and I, we recently watched um, the, the new TV show, I think the second season is coming out soon, uh, called The Chosen. Amen. Um, it's about the, the life of Christ and his disciples, it's really good. And one of the things I particularly like about this show is every episode begins with a um, kind of like a flashback. And, and sometimes they're flashbacks to these Old Testament scenes. Um, you know, you see Jacob and his sons digging a well uh, before, uh, before Jesus goes and meets the Samaritan woman, things like that. It's very cool, and it puts, puts some context to the show. Um, so I want to do something similar this morning. I want to begin with a flashback um, way back to the beginning in the Garden of Eden. Um, so I want to remind us again of the, the beginning of things. So God creates Adam and Eve, and he places them in a garden, in the Garden of Eden. And you remember the one restriction that he placed on them, right? Um, don't eat the fruit of this one tree. He warns them away from the one tree in the garden that will cause death. And he, he gives them a sure promise. In the day that you eat of it, you will die. The serpent comes along and, and he deceives them and they buy into his lie. They say, this tree won't be a curse to us. It will be a blessing. And so... You know how the story ends, right? They eat of the fruit, and all of mankind is plunged into a curse as a result of their, their self-will, their disobedience to God. Nevertheless, God is gracious, he's faithful, and as he sends them out of Eden, because they can't dwell uh, in the place where they had fellowship with him any longer, as he sends them out of Eden, he clothes them um, in animal skins to cover their shame, until such a time as it can be removed. And he, he promises them that the seed will come, the man will come who will crush the serpent's head, even as his heel is bruised. That's the promise that he gives to Adam and Eve way back in the Garden of Eden. So that brings us back to, to our study in the Passion Week. That's our, that's our prologue, that's our flashback. So let's fast forward now. We've seen Christ enter the city and be lauded as king on Sunday. He entered and the people are casting their coats and palm branches in the streets. And he, he enters with a bang. On Monday, he enters the temple and he cleanses it. He turns over tables. He drives the moneylenders out. And he occupies the temple. And he teaches there for at least the next uh, two days, maybe three and the Pharisees and Sadducees and the Herodians, they're all coming to him trying to uh, overturn his authority, and he, he turns them all away. He overcomes every single one of their arguments. So he's teaching the temple for several days. Last week, uh, we saw the day of preparation on Thursday, um, and the, the Passover meal, the Last Supper, where Christ he, he ordains the Lord's Supper as an ordinance for his church to remember his death that's to come. And that brings us very near to our narrative for this morning. We're almost there. Christ then, last year you might recall, we, we went over the farewell discourse. Christ gives that farewell discourse there in the upper room of his disciples. He warns them that his death is imminent, but he promises them that the Holy Spirit will be coming. 
on his way out of the city. He, he talks to them about the vine and the branches, if you recall that. So, so during that meal, you recall Judas leaves, and now Christ and his disciples, they leave the city as well. They, they cross the brook Kidron, that's the same way that Christ entered the city on, on Sunday, and they're, they're going up the Mount of Olives, somewhere probably very near to the Garden of Gethsemane, or in it, Christ gives his high priestly prayer, where he prays for his disciples. And the one thing I want to bring out from that is um, the very interesting phrase, statement that Christ uses. He says that he's completed all that the Father had for him to do. So that's to say he's completed every task that God has given him so far. He's left nothing undone. He's taught everything that needs to be taught. He's performed every miracle that needed to be done. He's raised every dead that needed to be brought back to life. He has represented God to man accurately. And it is finished. It's done. It's completed. He has done that task. He's fulfilled all righteousness. And he ends his first act, as it were, that took place from his baptism until the garden. And now he's entering the final act, where he's going to undertake his great life's work of representing man to God. Very late Thursday night, again, we see Christ beginning this great task of representing man to God. So they've eaten dinner, they've left the city, he's taught them along the way. Luke tells us, and that's where we're going to be first, by the way, is Luke 22. Um, Luke tells us that he leads the way to the Mount of Olives. Um, the other evangelists tell us that he pl- takes them to a place called Gethsemane. That's a garden that's on the slopes of the mountain. Luke tells us that this was, and I love this, according to his custom. John takes pains to point out that Judas knew the place. I love what uh, Calvin in his commentary says about this. He says, Luke expresses what is still more to the purpose, that Christ came there according to his custom. Hence, we infer that he did not seek retirement for the purpose of concealing himself, but rather as if he had made an, an assignation or an appointment with his enemies. He presented himself to death. He withdraws uh, to a place where his enemies will be forestalled, right? He's not in the place where Judas left him, so it'll take him a little while to get there. He has time to finish teaching his disciples the last-minute things. He wants to make sure they know. He has time to pray to his father. But he goes to a place where he can be found. He's not hiding from his enemies. Just a, a beautiful thing. Now let's turn to Luke 22, starting in verse 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So the first thing we're going to see um, this morning, we're going to see three different responses that Christ has. He's going to respond to three different people or groups. First, we're going to see how he responds to his father. Then we're going to see how he responds to his disciples. And finally, how he responds to his enemies. So this first response 
that we're going to focus on is his response to his father. The first thing we see here is, is Christ taking time aside for secret or private prayer. And, and this is so, so important. I love, it says that uh, when he came near to the place, he tells them to pray in 41, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. Um, the other accounts tell us that he brings, that he leaves uh, some of them sort of at the entry. He brings Peter, James, and John with him a little further, and then he withdraws from them too. So there's people close enough to witness this, but he's not, he's not there with them. He withdraws for secret prayer. Um, Christ makes, he makes a habit of withdrawing or slipping away for prayer all throughout the Gospels. This, this is so important. It's such a highlight of his life, is secret, private prayer. Um, there's an account, I think it's in, in Mark, um, where he's, he's teaching all day, and, and then he, he goes and, and people show up where he is at night, and he's teaching, and he's healing. And then it says, early in the morning he rose and withdrew. Uh, so Christ, after a long, laborious day of teaching, healing, serving others, he still rises up early and withdraws to a quiet place to play, to pray, rather. And his disciples are like, Jesus, the people need you. They're all looking for you. And he's not phased. He's not rattled by that. The importance of, of withdrawing to be alone with God is, is imperative. I think there's at least three reasons that, for this, three things that come to mind. Um, the first is just the the natural to keep from distractions. We are very distracted people. I know that I certainly am. Um, it doesn't take much to distract me. I mean, I distract myself when I sit down for prayer. I sit down for prayer and all of a sudden, things that I never want to do seem really important. I sit down to pray and I'm like, I need to do the dishes. I never want to do the dishes until I'm sitting down to pray. We're, we're naturally distractible. Even, even the kids think that's funny. So to keep from distractions, that's a legitimate reason to withdraw for private prayer. Uh, it was Susanna Wesley, the John and Charles Wesley's mother, that would throw her apron over her head, and all the kids knew they couldn't bother her when she had her apron over her head to pray. So just to keep from distractions. Um, also, I remember when I was a kid, um, it was sort of a, sort of a rule that you, you didn't ask mom and dad for something or, or to do something when you weren't sure what the answer is going to be in front of other people. It's, it, you don't say, you know, you don't come up with your friend and say, hey mom, can so-and-so sleep over? It's not polite. It doesn't get, your, your parent has the freedom, has more freedom to say no um, when you're not bringing everyone else along with you. This is a, a submissive attitude and prayer. You come before the Father alone, and you say, Father, this is what I desire, this is what I want, but it's up to you. Um, you're, you're giving your, your parent the, the right to say no without too much difficulty, as it were. It's a honor and submission. And finally, there's just isn't there a joy in being alone with the people you love? I mean, I love all of you, I like you all a lot, but the people I really want to be alone with are my wife and daughter. Those are the people that I, I most want to, I'd rather be at home with my wife and baby than anyone else, right? We want to be alone with the ones that we love. 
if you never want to be alone with God, if you always feel more comfortable when you're around him in another company, like you need a, a buffer or something, you have a, a serious flaw in your relationship with him. That's something that you might want to examine if you ever feel that. We want to withdraw from the world at times to be alone with the ones we love. How much more true should that be of the Lord? So there's the importance of withdrawn private prayer. Another thing we see here that I, I really enjoy, I thought it was uh, very telling. It says, so he goes to pray in verse 42. He says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. I, I, I love that he's, he's strengthened in prayer. He's not only strengthened by prayer, and he's not strengthened for prayer, but rather he's strengthened in prayer. So you might say to yourself, well, you know, I'd like to pray, but I can't. I just don't, I don't have the strength, I don't have the focus, I don't have the energy, I can't pray well. So I'll just do it later. I'll wait till a time where I'm stronger. Christ didn't do that. He went to prayer and in prayer he was strengthened and then he continued to pray, being strengthened. Prayer is its own category in the Christian life. It's something we need to try to settle in our minds. Prayer isn't just something we do uh, before we do the other things. It's not just a tag on, not just something you tag for the beginning of your meals or the end of your service. Prayer is its own category. It is, a, it is one of the fullest aspects of Christ's life, and it ought to be so for us as well. We should give the best of our time to the Lord in prayer, I think. It's its own category. I, I've always been struck by, by that in this passage. So if Christ... The spirit-filled man and the son of God needed to pray. He needed to withdraw to pray. He needed to be strengthened in prayer. How much more true is that of you and I? How much more true is that of you and I? Christ was always withdrawing. He was always slipping away and seeking to be alone with God. And we have that same privilege, don't we? But we just woefully neglect it. I... I was reading recently, and I think it's in Luke, the, uh, the story of Christ when he's, uh, when he's young. He's brought to, to Jerusalem for the Passover, I think, and um, his parents forget him in Jerusalem. They think he's with someone else. They think he's with the baggage. They leave their three days journey away, and they realize, Jesus isn't with us. Oh my goodness, Jesus isn't with us. Three days later. And so they go back, you know, maybe the whole caravan turns around, maybe they leave, I don't know. And they, they go back to Jerusalem, they find him in the temple. And, and he says, didn't you know that I would be in my father's house? And how often are we like Mary and Joseph? We just assume that Christ is going to tag along in the baggage of our life rather than seeking to be sure that he's with us, that he's close. He's always able to be found um, if we put in a little effort to seek him, to find him. So we see Christ withdrawing for private prayer. We see that he's strengthened in prayer, not just for prayer or by prayer, but strengthened in prayer. And then we see this tension between Christ's um, his disposition, his, his attitude, his posture, and his will. 
There's a tension here. I don't want to say that it's a conflict. These things are so... There are some things in the Bible that are so mysterious that you have to press into them a little bit because there's so much to worship God for in them. But if you press too hard, um, you almost always wind up being a heretic. Um, so, so I don't want to do that, but I want us to look a little bit at this mystery, this this tension between what Christ, what his attitude, his, his posture is, and what his ultimate will is. Um, we see him saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. I love the way that Luke puts this. You remember uh, way back when Christ heals the, um, I think it was the leper that comes to him, and he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He, he says, Lord, it is your prerogative to heal me or not. Christ uses that same, he, he received that. He said, yes, it is my right, and I am willing. He takes that same posture that the leper had towards him, and he, he brings it to God. Father, if you are willing, let this cup pass from me. There's no naming and claiming, no demanding, no railing. No, he comes to God with a submissive heart. If you are willing, I know that you can. It is not beyond you. If you're willing... If you're willing, remove this cup from me. That's the request that he's making. He doesn't want to suffer what he is about to suffer. Um, Self-preservation is a natural and often a helpful drive, right? Self-preservation can be a very good thing. It's only sinful to the degree that it becomes tyrannical in your life, that it rules you. It's given, it's given to man by God. <laughs> it's a way that we keep ourselves safe. The way that we keep ourselves productive for him for longer, right? Um, but it has to be submitted um, to better things at times. So it's, it's given to man by God, and so it was a part of Christ's experience. He uses the word, he says, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. I thought the, the first definition um, when I looked up this word in Greek is... Uh, it's properly used of an athlete before a contest. The word agony, it's, it's that feeling. It's not just butterflies in your stomach, but it's, it's, it's a, a, a fear and anxiety because you know you're about to engage in something difficult. Have you ever watched bull riding? Um, when when you, you watch the, the guy get down there in the chute, he's getting tied onto the bull, and you know everyone's there, they're smacking him in the helmet and encouraging him and stuff, and he gets tied on the bull. You know how... You know how he knows when, it's, when the, the guy pulling the gate knows when it's time to go? When the bull rider gives the nod. So you get tied on, and not only do you have to ride this thing that wants to kill you, but you've got to tell them to open the gate. You've got to willingly say, okay, it's time to go. And you nod, and the gate busts open. And that's the hardest part. The hardest part is nodding your head and saying, all right, let's go. You know, you sit there, and you're tied on. You're all ready. Everyone's watching. They're ready for the show to start. And it's like... Uh, maybe maybe we should do something else first. Maybe we should wait a little bit because this is terrifying. This thing wants to kill me. This is what Christ is experiencing in the garden. He knows what he's about to face. So what dangers is it that Christ is facing? Let this cup pass from me. What's that all about? We know the extreme physical suffering that Christ is going to face. 
and it will be agonizing. The crucifixion, it's got to be a bloody sacrifice. If he's going to be our Passover lamb, it has to be bloody. You remember, I, someone recently, I think it was Eric, was talking about the, um, the Old Testament priests, and they were like essentially butchers. You know, they'd have these, these pure white garments, and then they'd spend all day slaughtering animals, hacking them to pieces, being covered in blood. It had to be a sacrifice like that. It had to be messy if Christ was going to be our Passover lamb. He knew the Old Testament. He knew that he would be beaten beyond recognition as a man. He knew that the shedding of his blood was an essential part of the next day's work. He knew it was coming, and it would not be avoided. Further, he'd likely seen crucifixion and knew firsthand, this was a common practice of the day, so he knew firsthand the, the prolonged agony that it brought. But you might, you might think to yourself, other people have faced that, and worse. They have. I mean, that's not the worst way to die. It's a terrible, agonizing way to die. Um, if you remember, tradition says that Peter was brought to his crucifixion, and he didn't think he was worthy to die the same way Christ did. So he says, um, could we do that, but upside down? <laughs> He's crucified upside down. Um, there's all kinds of terrible ways to die. And we see Christ's disciples throughout history facing them with courage. I always think of um, when, when Bloody Mary um, was slaughtering the reformers in England. Uh, two of the men, um, Ridley and Latimer, I forget who, who said what, but they're brought to the stake and one says, uh, Latimer says, says, play the man, Ridley. Today, remember, they're about to be set on fire. He says, today we'll light a candle in England that I think shall never be extinguished. He's making puns about being burned to death. So if that's what Christ has for disciples, why is he so afraid? What's the great difficulty that he's facing? He knew more importantly than the physical suffering at the hands of the Jews and the Romans, he knew the spiritual suffering that he was going to face. He wasn't really afraid of men, not primarily at least. We, we're going to see that in a little bit. Um, and again, we've seen men face deal with, with a great deal of courage and joy for the sake of Christ. So why was he so distressed? He was going to be punished by God not just men. He was about to become the scapegoat. You remember the scapegoat from the Old Testament on the Day of Atonement? One would be slaughtered, the other would have, would be ritually, the priest would lay hands on him, and all of Israel's sin would be placed on that goat, and he'd be driven outside of the camp. And he was, was never to come back to the camp. I think tradition says they'd usually follow him and like push him off a cliff or something so he wouldn't wander back into camp. He was going to be cut off, put outside the camp, driven away. For the first time in all eternity past, he was going to be cut off from God the Father. The one who always had perfect fellowship was about to be crushed under the wrath of God. He would become sin for us, and he would bear all of God's wrath directed at man's sin 
God's fierce hatred for sin and for sinners was going to be laid upon him and contained into a few short hours' time. That's why Christ is in agony. He's going to face a thing that no one has ever faced and no one else ever could face. The complete, perfect, righteous wrath of God. So the disposition of Christ, the posture of Christ toward this, is one of self-preservation. Let this cup pass from me. He is a high priest who is not untouched by our infirmities. But what's Christ's will, ultimately? Uh, John says a couple things about this. John 4.34, he says, uh, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Uh, He says in John 5, I seek not my will, but the will of him who sent me. He says things like this all throughout the Gospels. His will, his master plan, his, his purpose in life is to do the will of the one who sent him. That's not at odds with this this self-preservation, but he's got to take this natural drive for self-preservation and subject it to this higher passion. Hebrews says, and it almost sounds blasphemous to say this, talking about Jesus, but Hebrews said it, he learned obedience. He learned obedience through submission. He takes all of those natural drives that he has as a man, and he submits them to the Father. Not my will, but yours. Not my will, but yours. Lord, I don't want to suffer this. I don't want to go through this. But your will is my will. And I'm going to submit these natural inclinations and urges to to this supreme plan that, that we've hatched in eternity past. That's his, his will. He must subject his natural passion for self-preservation to his holy passion for his Father's will. And now let's look a little bit at what this submission means. Go back, go back to our prologue. Adam in the garden, right? Adam's great sin in the garden was that of self-will. Wasn't it? He wanted autonomy. He wanted to know the answers and to make his decisions for himself. He was tempted with a tree that he thought would be a blessing, but in fact it was a curse. He chose to indulge himself and he became a curse to all men. Um, He was driven then out of the garden, uh, but still he was graciously clothed by God. He was promised, and the day that you eat of it, you'll die, but he ate anyway. Christ now, this is such a good picture, Christ comes to the garden to be the true and better Adam for us. Christ, he enters the garden, he too is faced with a tree. The cross, this impending cross set before him, he's faced with a tree as well. And like Adam, he knows that in the day that he goes to that tree, he will die. He will die. Yet the call on him is much more dreadful than Adam's. Where Adam was warned of death for disobedience, the man Christ is promised that if he is obedient, he will certainly die. You are going to be the representative for man, and if you are obedient, if you submit to this, it will surely mean your death. If you go to that tree, I will kill you. 
and you'll be cursed. As it is written, cursed is every man that hangs on a tree. Where Adam was clothed to hide his shame, Christ will be stripped and humiliated. Where Adam was driven from the garden for his own sin, Christ will be taken from the garden for the sins of others. But where Adam became a curse to all men, Christ will bear that curse, and he will be a blessing to all men. Isn't that incredible? Christ, he just turns the table over. He does what Adam couldn't do on our behalf. For the joy set before him, he willingly submits himself to the Father's plan. And part of that, I, I want to make much of this, because it's easy, and I, I do. I want to make much of the glory of God, God's master plan for all the ages. But I also don't want to miss the fact that you and I are part of this joy set before him. That is why he was willing to submit himself to the Father's plan is one of the reasons, for reasons that are deep and mysterious, that are beyond our ken, Christ actually loves us. Like, it's not just that he's, he's covenantally bound to us, and so he's going to give us good things. Um, for, with a love that is not at all self, it doesn't begin with us at all. There's nothing in us to compel his love, and yet he actually loves us. He, he just spent his high priestly prayer praying that we would be, would be unified together, that we would have fellowship with him as he has fellowship with the Father. And with that in view, he's willing to go to the cross and die. I mean, think about that. There isn't any good reason. If you know you, you know there isn't any good reason in you for him to love you. But he actually does. He actually does. He isn't just pulling the strings on, on his master plan. But there's this deep mystery. Um, we know that there's nothing within us that prompts or compels his love, but it's so undeniably true. And so he's the better Adam. He takes our law place in our stead, so we don't have to. We should be the ones to bear the wrath of God, but for our sake, he steps in and fills the gap. That is Christ's response to his Father, willing submission. He is agonizing, he's weeping, he's sweating great drops of blood, Luke tells us here. He's in, in such uh, misery and anguish. But he says, not my will, but yours. That's how he responds to the Father. How does he respond to his disciples and deal with his disciples? Let's, let's turn to Matthew 26. This gives some good information on how Christ deals with his disciples. And for, for those of you who, who particularly love this account in, in, um, in any one of the Gospels... We're obviously Lord of the Rings fans around here. We The name of the title is uh, Return of the King, right? The title of the series. And one thing that fans of books, uh, when they're made into movies, often say is, that's not as good as the book. Um, we're, we're going to miss a lot. This sermon is not as good as the book. We're going to miss a lot. But I want to highlight just a few things 
about the way that Christ is dealing with his disciples. There's much more. I encourage you to read all of these accounts on your own. They are so good, so rich. Um, but I do want to highlight a few things, and Matthew does a good job for us here. We'll read uh, verses 40 through 46. So he, he gets up from prayer, and he comes to the disciples, and he found them sleeping. He said to them, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So, leaving them again, he went away and he prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And then he came to the disciples and he said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So the first thing uh, that we see here is he tells his disciples, his disciples, um, to to watch and pray, lest they enter into temptation. So we see prayer is used as as a defense, as it were. Um, so he says, "Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation." That Christ uses, and he says, "Watch and pray that you enter not into temptation." He uses the verb, uh, the negation, and the preposition for purposes. Three things there, right? Um, that you not enter into, that you not enter into. Um, so the verb enter, the negation not, and the preposition into. Think of sin as, as, as a, a living thing. It's like a great, this isn't really a living thing, but it's the best picture I can think of, a great grasping tumbleweed. Um, it, it blows across your path, and there's nothing you can do about that. Temptations will blow across your path. You can avoid entering into them. You cannot always avoid temptation. The wise man limits the temptations that he faces, certainly. But you cannot in this life always avoid temptation. But you can avoid entering into it. You do not have to step into the trap that's laid for you. That's the, the idea here. Um, it may be the will of the Lord, even, for you to enter a time of temptation or trial that will strengthen you and fortify you for future service. Think Christ in the in the wilderness, right? He was driven out into the wilderness by the by the Spirit so that he could face temptation. But that's a different thing from entering into it, from entering into the object of your temptation. Christ knows that the temptations uh, both to uncalled for violence and to unmanly cowardice are set before the disciples. Both of these things are going to tempt them. And he says, watch and pray that you not enter into temptation. Which again, just this, this tension between the, the disposition of Christ and the will of Christ. He knows that these things must come to pass. He knows that the shepherd must be struck and that the sheep must scatter. But, but there, there's a part of him, a dispositional, and attitudinal part of him that's saying, don't do it. Don't enter into temptation. Watch and pray. He knows that they will not succeed in this endeavor, but there's still that, that, that drive for their, for their success. I, I, that really struck me 
Okay, he knows that these temptations are going to face them, and he says to pray that you not enter into temptation. This, this is such a great thing for us. Pray that you not enter into temptation. Um, th this is how you overcome temptation. This is how you overcome sin. It's through prayer. Prayer is, is the first the first line of defense. It's not the last thing. It's not once you've tried everything else, go to prayer. No. Prayer is where the battle really is fought. And then you go out and you live out of the prayer that you've prayed. Um, Christ is he is this bottomless well of righteousness and virtue and obedience. And we we might be, if you're anything like me, there's there's days where we're like, change the picture, we're like candles, right? We, there's a day where you burn bright, where you're, you really, and it's not fake, it's not manip manipulated, you really want to serve Christ well. You're passionate, um, but you can't sustain that on your own, right? You flicker out, you, the, the candle kind of gutters out, but Christ doesn't. He doesn't gutter out. He, he is a constant, unremitting source of righteousness and strength and virtue. He, he is the high priest who never sinned, right? The, the Old Testament priests, when you came to them, they were sympathetic from a position of weakness, right? You come to the priest and say, well, priest, I sinned again. I have to make my sacrifice. He's like, oh, me too. Me too. I did that as well. I'll, I'll make a sacrifice too because I also have sinned. Christ, when we come to him, He's sympathetic. He's, he's faced our weaknesses, but he's not sympathetic from a position of weakness, but from a position of strength. We come to him and we say, Lord, I've sinned. And he says, well, you don't have to because I didn't. And I'm giving you myself. I'm offering you my righteousness, my wisdom, my strength, my grace. It is all there for the asking. It's a spring of living water that's offered to us. So he's like a deep well and we're like, these small leaky vessels that get dipped into it and filled. And, and you might say, well, I've got a lot of holes. I'm, I'm weak. I, you know, it's, it's hard for me not to sin. I have this particular struggle that I struggle with. Listen, just stay close to the well. It doesn't matter how much that cup leaks if you just keep dipping it in in prayer and in fellowship with him. Keep going back to him and pray that you not enter into temptation. It doesn't matter how small and leaky a vessel we are left to ourselves um, if we're never left to ourselves, right? So go to him in prayer. I love the beautiful picture in Nehemiah. I have the reference here somewhere. Um, but but this, this beautiful picture, Israel's enemies are, uh, have hired counselors against them. Somehow they're, they're trying to stop the people from completing the work, building the walls of Jerusalem. And the Israelites are afraid of this. And so uh, it says in Nehemiah that we, we pray to the Lord our God and we set up a watch. We pray to the Lord our God and we set up a watch. We set up a guard. That's such good practical advice, isn't it? Pray to the Lord your God and then set up a watch. Don't be so spiritual um, that you forget to be practical. The Lord has given us means. He's made us people um, with physical bodies. So if you want to wake up early um, so you can have a time to pray with the Lord, maybe you should set an alarm. <laughs> you know, uh, set up guards. If you, I remember Paul Washer telling the story of when he was, I think he was in college, 
And uh, he said, you know, he really wanted to have a good prayer life. So he, he'd go into his closet and he'd try to have, you know, long times of prayer with God. And he'd fall asleep all the time. He was constantly falling asleep. So he said, I, I took an alarm clock in with me. And I'd set it for five minutes, start praying, fall asleep. The alarm would go off. I'd wake up. I'd set it for another five minutes, start praying, fall asleep. The alarm. Be practical. You know, don't, if you want to have a good prayer life, you have to start by praying. So be practical. Set up a watch. Do what you must, but make this your priority. If it means you you wake up in the middle of the night because that's the only time there's quiet, then wake up in the middle of the night and pray. It's Nehemiah 4.9, by the way. Just found it. So that's his, his response to his disciples. The first thing is he, he gives them prayer as a means of defense against sin. But then we see them... We see them not taking advantage of that, right? They're falling asleep on their watch. And so the first thing is, is Christ, he does give them something of a sharp rebuke there in, in verse 40, right? He says, um, could you not watch with me one hour? Could you not watch with me one hour? He says, it's just an hour, guys. I haven't been I haven't been over here too long. You couldn't. I mean, I've been up the whole hour. I've been in agony the whole hour. You couldn't stay up with me? What would the Lord say to us of our prayer lives? Could you not watch with me one hour? Um, one of the, I forget who it was. One of the commentators made this point. He, he referred back to David. Um, you remember when David's, Ab, David's son Absalom betrays him? And David is fleeing Jerusalem. And actually, ironically, he's in the same place. He's going over the Mount of Olives, fleeing with his, his followers. And he's weeping because he's been betrayed. And his followers are weeping with him. At least David, the King David's followers, had the decency to weep with him. Um, but Christ's followers are falling asleep on the job as Christ is weeping over the betrayal he's about to face. Overcome by grief and exhaustion, they leave the Lord alone, insensitive to his heartache. So Christ rebukes their lack of stamina and prayer. And they couldn't stay up with him a single hour. So we do see a, a harsh rebuke, a sharp rebuke there. But then we do we see a softened rebuke as well. The, the second one, though, it's perhaps not flattering. Um, it is somewhat softened. He moderates his tone. Um, and again, what a high priest we have. He's not unsympathetic to our weaknesses. He knows their, their flesh is weak even when their spirits are willing. And how true is this of us? I mean, we, you know, you, you might really have an earnest desire to, to, to be with the Lord in prayer. But every time you sit down, you're, you are struck by the weakness of your flesh. You fall asleep. And you're struggling to focus. Um, the Lord is not, he does not reject that. He, he doesn't reject that. Um, we're earthbound creatures, we need to remember that. We're earthbound creatures, and we're affected by a curse, no less, that's always trying to kill us, as it were. Um, one of my, so we need to plan for that. We need to plan against our weakness. Um, one of my professors in college used to always say, sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is take a nap. And I think that's very good advice. Um, 
Schedule your life to the degree that you can. Schedule your life so that you have reserves um, for when you need to be up late in prayer and study. Um, actually plan your life for God's use and not for your own. Wouldn't that be helpful if we were to do that? So, that was his, his response to his disciples. He gives them prayer as a defense. He gives them a sharp rebuke. And he gives them a, a gentler rebuke. And finally, let's go back to, to Luke, Luke 22. We're going to see Christ's response to his enemies. So we've seen Christ respond to the Father with submission. And we've seen Christ respond to his disciples he gives them prayer as defense. When they don't use it, he rebukes them. Now we're going to see his respond to his enemies. I, oh, this is so good. Starting in 47, verse 47. Um, actually, let's start in 46. So he says to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then in 47, while he's still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, who was leading them. He drew near Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched the ear and healed him. And Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers in the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. I love, I just love the radical contrast between Christ in prayer and, and Christ here before his enemies. There's a, a public nerve and courage that is only found in private prayer. And I love this. Um, Matthew and Mark both point out uh, that Christ tells the disciples to rise and let us be going, for my betrayer is at hand. Where were they going to go? We say, guys, quick, my betrayer is coming. Let's get further up the mountain. Let's escape. No, he's already fought that battle. He's already determined what he's going to do. So where is he going to go? Where does he want them to rise and follow him to? To go meet his enemies. He's stepping out to meet him in the street. He sees them coming, and he doesn't make them come all the way to him. I, I love this. This is such a, there's not going to be any dodging this. So Christ, he awakens his disciples to join him in approaching them. Knowing full well what pain and wrath he's going to bear, Christ Jesus, the man for us, he just manfully meets his opponents. Remember that, that bull rider I talked about? The agony that Christ was feeling? Well, he gives the nod. He's ready now. He, he's prepared himself. He's tied in, and he gives the nod, and the gate busts wide open. He says, now, now it's time. It, this is so, so incredible. He doesn't cringe at this final act leading up to his crucifixion, but he approaches it boldly, boldly. This, this is the kind of courage um, that I want to have in the face of difficulty and trial the kind that Christ modeled. And again, this boldness, this faithfulness, this is a thing that's acceptable to us. This isn't Jesus just being the Son of God. 
This is Jesus having, having consecrated his will to God in prayer. He's ready for whatever comes. He's entrusted himself to God, and he's ready to face whatever God will bring his way. You and I can experience this as well. The Lord acted as a righteous man. He sought strength in prayer. He settled the matter with God and received what he needed. Um, so make that your model. Make that your model. Spend time with God. Settle the thing with him in prayer and go out to face the difficulties that life throws at us. So we see his response to his enemies first, that, that public nerve that's found in private prayer. I love that. And we see he, he challenges Judas, right? Judas comes and just with such blatant hypocrisy, he leads Christ's enemies to him so that they can take him and kill him. Um, but, but he betrays him with a kiss. He comes to him, excuse me, and, and he says to him, uh, he draws near, and the other accounts say that he calls him master. He says, master, master. And he comes to him and he kisses him as a friend would greet another friend. Uh, you remember another story from the life of David when his nephew Joab, um, who was always killing people, one of the people that he killed, uh, he wants to be the general, and, and David has made, I think it was a Massa general, and so he says, goes to him and he says, brother, and he gives him a kiss, and as he's giving him a kiss, he stabs him in the back. This is Judas. He approaches Christ, and he greets him with a kiss so that the, the guards will know, I suppose in the dark, who the, the one that they're supposed to be taking is. And Jesus says, uh, do you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? He calls him out. He reveals his hypocrisy. Um, how often, how often is false piety a smokescreen for self-serving sin? How often are we like Christ? He won't be used. Christ will not be used uh, by his disciples. True ones or false ones, he will not be used. He won't be a means to sinful ends. Judas was not there to own him as Lord and Master. He, he's like the one in Matthew 7 who says, Lord, Lord. And he served, he, he had a track record, right? He was one of Christ's disciples. He served him. Um, so he comes to him and he says, Lord, Lord. But, but Jesus says, I don't know you. He was there to turn him over to make a buck off of his death. This is the reality for the false convert. He pretends to love Christ while actually seeking his own selfish ends. I want the benefits of Christ without owning him as my Lord. I'm, I, I, I'm just trying to get something for myself here that will not be well received. Christ will not let that go unchallenged. The next thing we see Christ do is he, he forbids resistance, right? Uh, I think it's John who tells us that, or maybe it's Mark. Um, Peter is the one who, uh, he draws a sword and he cuts off the high priest servant's ear, um, and Christ says, "No, stop that! You put that away." He he he's he's not having any of it. He's already committed himself to submitting to the Father's will, and he's not going to have his disciples uh, try to fight his way out of this. You remember the story of the the Alka Five? Some of my heroes there: uh, Jim Elliot, Nate Saint, Roger Yandurian, um Pete Fleming. 
and I can't remember the fifth fellow's name, but uh, they, they were missionaries to Ecuador, to the Aka Indians, and they were, they were killed by the Indians they were trying to contact for the gospel. And uh, I recently read that they were, at least several of them were armed. Um, four of them, I think, were military trained. One was a, a nonconformist, but four of them were, were veterans, and several of them were armed. They could have defended themselves. Um, you know, several armed men against some spear-wielding natives. They probably could have defended themselves rather well, but they chose not to. One of them, I think, fired his gun in the air to try to keep them away. Um, but they, they didn't fire on their enemies because th their, their thinking was that they were ready for heaven and their enemies were not. They were ready for eternity and their enemies were not. Christ is not willing that, blood, that anyone's blood but his own should be shed in this situation. I think that's such a good picture. And this is just, it's such a good picture that of what he said, no one takes his life, but he lays it down willingly. You know, couldn't I call down a legion of angels? I don't need your help, Peter. I don't need anyone's help in handling this, um, but I willingly lay my life down. It, while his life is still in his hands and in his power, he willingly gives himself over to his enemies. And we see him face down the mob, right? He, he looks the mob of his opposition. So there's priests and their guards. Um, perhaps they had, they had a, a Roman uh, detachment as well with them. Um, and essentially he calls out their cowardice. He doesn't let anyone get away with any. Even as he's being offered up to death, he doesn't let, any, doesn't let anything slide here, right? They come to him, this crowd of people um, in, the, in the middle of the night, coming to take him away, and he says, um, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? It's like, look, do, do you think I'm a threat to you? Are you so afraid that you come uh, with swords and clubs and all your guards to come and take me? Um, when I was with you day after day in the temple, you didn't lay hands on me. It's strange. I could have imagined the last three days when we were talking face to face in the temple, you didn't try to take me then. No, but this is your hour, the power of darkness. You come out under cover of darkness to take the Son of Man. You try to hide your shame by rejecting me in the dark. Such a, such a powerful response. Again, just the, the steely nerve that Christ has in the face of his enemy. Those like these men um, who, who they seek to hide their shame, so they're always going to prefer the darkness to the light. They're at their strongest in the darkness, away from the blinding light, the truth of Christ's claims. Um, and, and Christ is not having any of it. He wants them to, he calls it out. He, he wants them to know that he knows their game, and they won't get away with it. And finally, oh, this is, this is so good. What does Christ do um, with this one that uh, Malchus, one of the accounts, tells us his name is, whose ear is cut off? So um, in verse 50, one of them struck the servant of the high priest. He cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. This is, as far as I can tell, Christ's last um, 
act of divine prerogative, his last use of his divine powers before he's going to go to the cross. The last miracle that Christ performs is to heal his enemy, the one who's come to take him away to death. This is such a beautiful picture of Christ's attitude, isn't it? This is what he's about to do. He's going to go heal his enemies. He's going to go die on a cross for the sins of those who are nailing him to the cross. And he, he just shows that by healing his enemy right here. Such a, such a good picture. So finally, this is... There's a very real sense in which the battle for our redemption um, it was fought here in the Garden of Gethsemane almost a day before Calvary. Christ, the true and better Adam, the man for us, he fought the battle out in prayer. He responded to his father with absolute unqualified submission. Knowing what he was going to face, he submitted to the father. He responded to his disciples with discipline, but with gentleness. And he responded to his enemies with this just intrepid nerve and confidence. Once he offered himself, he surrendered all autonomy, all power over himself, and he put himself into the hands of sinful men. Uh, but here, while he's still free and under no compulsion except a love for the Father, his own glory, and his bride, he lays down his will to suffer as an atonement. From here on, the die is cast, and we see no remorse um, though we will see much tragedy and grief on the cross. Now he's going to go before the courts of Jews and Gentiles alike. He's going to be raged against by, by the nations, by the heathen, and he'll be ultimately condemned to death by the hands of sinful men and the foreordained plan of God. The die is cast. He's stepped out into it now. The gate busts open wide, and he's ready to face what's to come. Unlike Adam, he is going to do so as a better representative. He is going to bear our curse, our wrath, and our law place that he might be a blessing to all the nations and not a curse. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.